could actually talk about the fact that we've moved into virtually every room in the house to record this podcast because yes. there's building work going on all around us. Because we're in the pink room now, so that will definitely affect how we um, discuss things. Yeah, yeah. nice calming pink walls. <laughs> so what have you been seeing this week? I went to see one of those plays that I think is really hard to write about, which is The House of Shades by Beth Steele. And it's hard to write about because at some levels it's a bit of a mess. It's an epic drama about um, one family and it attempts to um, encompass British political life from 1965 to... 2019. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. So, a lot of stuff and about working class families. So, um, you know, rare. And it was hard to write about because it doesn't quite work, but it's just um, a fabulously, it's fabulously full of great things. Yeah. So, and, and that, you know, I, it's just hard to convey that in a review, especially when you've got to give a star rating. Yeah. So it's become one of those things which I've, I've looked at the early reviews just now and I've given it four stars and it's got two as well. And, right. you know, it's just one of those things. It just depends whether you admire its ambition and recognise the kind of talent in the writing. So tricky to write about, I think. But that's interesting, isn't it, in terms of... You know, maybe that's a failing of the amount of words that you're allowed now that you can't then sort of elongate your thoughts to encompass something that's sprawling and maybe doesn't have a neat beginning, middle and end and doesn't necessarily sit into a niche that people automatically recognise. Yeah. But it's pushing boundaries and, and it's had to develop its own genre in order to encapsulate the nature of the story that the writer wanted to write about. Yeah, and there's always the tendency to, to yeah, to praise the well-made play. We've talked about that before. Yeah. And and, and I, I kind of, I sat in the car with my friend Susan. This is an insight into the critic's life. So she gave me, we went to the petrol station because she'd run out of petrol. <laughs> and then we sat in the car for ages just discussing it. And because you're not allowed to talk about it to the other critics but you know you are allowed to talk about it your friend and um, she writes for Coronation Street so she's really interested in that kind of how you write for working class characters and how you make it all come to life and we'd admire the writing so much I mean Beth Steele's got such a brilliant voice and there's this great line about well she really pissed on your strawberries which just kind of (laughs) just loved so anyhow in the end after this great conversation with Susan in the car um I gave it four stars because I just thought yeah it's good you know it's worth seeing it's really worth seeing and it's got brilliant central performance from anything that has you talking days later about detail and things that suddenly come to you again because it's there's so many layers and so much nuance and so many different characters that are slow burn and and really use the entire arc of the play I don't think there's anything much better, really. And anything that just sits with you uh, uh, as a story or reminds you of other stories, I mean, that's the joy of theatre, that, you know, you immediately you take your place in a canon, whatever that canon represents, whether it's sort of cultural or, you know, class or, you know, European or whatever it is, you immediately, by virtue of the fact you've put yourself out there, you take your place in it. And and, and so the, the resemblances and things that chime with other things, I mean, that's that's the journey of, of theatre making. And, and So that's a good moment to say that yeah. welcome to this week's episode um, of As the episode Actress. Episode five. <laughs> episode five of <laughs> As the Actress Said to the Critic. And I'm the critic, Sarah Crompton. 
And I'm the actress Nancy Carroll. And you, Nancy, have had an interesting week because you have been at the Ian Charleston Awards. Yeah. Which we can't talk about too much because um, we're recording this before the final result is announced. But we can talk about it um, as a a, a kind of extraordinary example of... um, critics and actors yeah. producing something wonderful. Because it was set up by John Peter, the Sunday Times critic, because uh, of his experiences watching Ian Charlson um, perform eight weeks before he died, um, taking over from Daniel Day-Lewis as Hamlet at and the, the National, National. Theatre. Uh, and I think, you know, was blown away. I think it was fairly common knowledge at that point that Ian Charlson was ill. Um, but you know, still incredibly young and tragically um, not long for the world. And and so to then see him, watch him say Hamlet's words, take on a completely new depth and meaning uh, was was extraordinary. And and as I remember it, and forgive me, this is wrong, that that, um, he had done one or two performances and then felt that he couldn't then go on and John... Peter, I think, went to his house. John Peter was a fascinating critic because he was born in Hungary and taught himself English and yet was, you know, quite late in life and yet was one of the great English stylists as a writer. And also Shakespeare was hugely important to him that um, he felt that, you know, seeing a production of Richard III kind of presaged the Hungarian Revolution and um, he, he felt it had this kind of passionate sense of um, theatre being able to speak down down the years. Yeah. My understanding is that he went, that production of Hamlet, because it had opened with Daniel Day-Lewis and because Ian Charleston was the replacement, nobody had reviewed. And Suzanne Burtish told, this this, this story Ian McKellen told me, so Suzanne Burtish told John Peter that he should go and see it. Right. And so he turned up at the National and he went to see the performance and was overwhelmed by the courage of it. And um, yes, and then I think Charleston did feel really ill and he sent him a bottle of champagne right, to express very directly his um, appreciation. Not Actually, not just the courage, I think also just the kind of brilliance of it. You know, this sense that you were seeing a kind of unforgettable performance right at the end of a man's life yeah and that's how it that's how it came about and then he went to Richard Eyre after Charleston's death right so you take over the story from there I was lucky enough to be invited to it as a young actor because it, it it's a celebration of actors under 30 I think in in classical work works written up to and the end of Shaw. Yeah. I think it includes Shaw. And it's run by the National Theatre and the Sunday Times. So Peter yeah. was a critic of the Sunday Times and the National Theatre. Just yeah. uh, Richard Eyre agreed to, to do it. And know. having been there as um, an under 30-year-old, um, you know, it, it's an extraordinary room to walk into because it's full of the great and good and a lot of people who knew Ian Charlson and want to celebrate him every year. And there's, you know, there's no photographer, there's no, um, you know, great song and dance in terms of the marketing of it. It's all very in-house and it isn't sort of hugely glamorised. I mean, people get dressed up and stuff, but up until this year, because of COVID, 
it has been um, in the mezzanine and, and everybody sits down and you're put on these long tables and it, it's a proper celebration of theatre. Yeah. Um, Does it feel encouraging to a, a young actor? Well, because that's exactly it. it. It's to encourage, it's to say that you may feel that you're at the beginning, but we who are slightly further along recognise something in you that should be uh, celebrated um, and harnessed and and just to keep going. And in fact, Rory this year, Rory Kinnear um, was the guest of honour and made the most beautiful speech. It was incredibly moving. Just about the nature of, you know, this might not be the most glamorous award ceremony that you will get invited to. But, you know, as an actor... It's one of the most important because it's a, it's just a proper, proper celebration of the work in its purest form and what classical work represents. And it doesn't necessarily, um, won't always necessarily make a massive difference to your bank balance, but it will make a massive difference to the sort of performer that you are and, and will always want to be. And that the baton is very clearly handed down from generation to generation and that's what it represents it's 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 a handing down of that baton and that technically it pushes you that um you know everything about understanding the language and appreciation of the language is it only warms your theater making soul really uh I mean, I can't remember the details of it. It was just, it was just oh, incredibly really moving. I mean, I think, I mean, the extraordinary thing, well, so just to, to sort of row back slightly on the actual award, there have been, I think the extraordinary thing about the award is yeah. that um, they, the, the judges work really hard. So they, they, they go and look at a lot of work that might not necessarily be, as you say, like, you know, not necessarily good for anybody's bank balance, yeah. not attracting headlines necessarily, but um, around the country, they're very keen to go and look at people all over the place and watch young actors. So that's the first thing that I think it's had a, it's been completely sort of notable and admirable about. The other thing is its success rate is extraordinary. You, Nancy, were, as we know, nominated three times. But it it is like a roll call of all the actors that we're watching today. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, people like Helen McCrory, I mean, she didn't win it, but she's on the list. Uh, Damien Lewis, Dominic West... Benedict Cumberbatch, Benedict Rebecca, Cumberbatch Hall. Rebecca Hall. I'm trying to think who won it. Who's uh, Emma Fielding, of course, who was one of the judges this year. Um, Hattie Morahan. Um, I mean, lo- yeah, endless. I yeah, David Oyelowo. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Of course, uh, yeah. Um, oh, Papa Esiedo. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it just goes on and on yeah. and on, being brilliant. Brilliant. And, and and so that's the other thing. It has been great. And it is really interesting that it is for a classical drama. And when um, Peter um, founded the awards, I'm going to quote this, he said, classical work is the solid bedrock of all acting. It is classical acting with its twin demands of psychological perception and formal excellence, which truly tests and proves the actor's ability and stamina, both physical and mental. And that's that's such a clear definition yeah. of why, for an actor, you know, doing a play in the classic canon, yeah, um, is just such a, a an important thing, really. And I mean, have you felt that when you've been? Because you you've done a, especially at the start of your career, you did mainly classic work. Yeah, so, yeah, definitely you know, Shakespeare and yeah, Shaw and um, Ratigan and and Shakespeare, and I think that. It's just a, it 
I mean, it, it sounds almost patronising to say that it's a training ground, but it is, um, it's so testing, as John Peter says, of your stamina, um, not only of your, you know, physical stamina and your vocal stamina, but also your intellectual stamina, I suppose, in, just in terms of continuing to mine constantly for meaning, particularly with like Shakespeare and stuff, because it is in a slightly older language and you're constantly looking for ways to communicate. And the, the ease uh, with that language doesn't come immediately. I mean, equally for an audience. I mean, I think you you tune into it. It's like immersion, really. I mean, it is that thing of you know, with opera or with any foreign language, they say that, you know, 40% or something, whatever it is, it, it, it will come to you just through immersion because the the human need to understand, the human need to communicate, you know, that the, eventually the brain does tune in. And it's wonderful. I mean, I can remember years and years ago doing a production of Midsummer Night's Dream at Sheffield Crucible that Michael Grandish directed. And it was, God, it was wonderful. And, it, and but at that time, and I'm sure it still is the case, they had a massive budget for education and they were doing huge amounts of workshops with kids on Midsummer Night's Dream. And these kids, by the time Crucible had finished with them and they were actually put in front of the play, they were there. They were in the woods, you know. And I can just remember viscerally the excitement of these kids when um, Sam Spiro was playing Titania and she came on and she had this extraordinary dress made of sort of orange and yellow and red feathers and just looked like the most glorious parakeet. Obviously, the bottom half, not the top. Sam doesn't look anything like a parakeet. But the, the, as she walked on... Um, all these kids were like, it's Italia, it's Italia. <laughs> you know, they, they were there. They were absolutely there and their ears were fully tuned in and they knew what she represented and, and they were, and they, you know, you could hear a pin drop, yeah. which in an audience of under 10-year-olds is in Shakespeare is pretty extraordinary. Really. So is it the communication levels that make it different for in terms of you know the the kind of rigor of it because I suppose if I think about classic plays particularly Shakespeare because you tend to come back to that um, at some levels as a viewer they're not they're not always so different than say um, a great play written post-shaw I can think of some of Stoppard's plays that are just as testing maybe as Shakespeare or um uh, you know the restoration comedies or something like that. So, so what what are the muscles that you're flexing as an actor that are different in a classic? I think. I mean, it, it's lots of things, but I think the thing that immediately comes to mind is the power of language, and and actually Shakespeare as a prime example. You know, you one could argue there isn't a lot of subtext because he was writing so quickly and he was writing for actors that had to learn it quickly and they were churning out plays, that all the clues were in the language. That, you know, the difference between vowels and consonants, the difference between lengths of lines and pauses and caesuras and whether he uses um, verse or prose and all that, every single thing that he used was deliberately a clue to the actor on what he required of them in that moment. So trusting writers trusting language to tell the story that it isn't you know always as an actor you want to bring something to it you want to validate 
you know, the gift of that part and you playing that part at that time, of course. But I think trust of language and the joy of words and the strength of the power of words is a huge lesson that he teaches us constantly. And, and act, I mean, I ha- actually haven't ever done a Shakespeare play twice. I know lots of actors. I was talking to an actor last week who, you know, has done The Tempest and was being offered The Tempest for the third time. And, you know, lots of actors have gone back to Hamlet to play different parts. Some people have played the same part twice. And they will always say there's something new to learn because your perspective as being slightly older will be different. And so your emotional response to what he wanted you to perform, what he wanted you to communicate at that time, will always be fresh and always surprising. And that's a testament to the strength of of his stories. Also about breath and yeah. about the body as an instrument and about, you know, using his rhythms to change the way that you breathe because the character perhaps needs to breathe in a slightly different way. So about using your body, that's yeah, a really yeah. important thing. You know, that, that sometimes, you know, more modern plays require um, an understanding of subtext. They use sentence structure in a different way. They use accents in a different way. You know, you're relying on different tools. But I think you could argue that a lot of those early writers really, really use their actors like Olympians. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? It goes back to the Greeks because, I mean, we talk about the canon and I think in England we see the canon so much as starting with Shakespeare, which is sort of slightly misleading because yeah, it yeah, does completely. go right back and to... And he borrowed the, from the Greeks, you yeah, know, Yeah, and it goes time. back to the um, Greek drama. What I always find interesting about watching, so and particularly watching young actors, I do remember, so Papa Esiodo, I do remember so vividly his Hamlet. I, I always um, regard watching actors in familiar plays yeah. as molten literary criticism in a sense because yeah, yeah. you've got the director but you've also got so often fresh talent fresh voices coming in to do something and um, when I was studying Shakespeare at university which I did endlessly and which I really really loved yeah I I was very conscious of the poetry and of how kind of solid the plays are you know just how well constructed and how how much you could draw from them and how much they carry on speaking but I think it's only really since I've watched them the same thing watching them over and over again yeah, yeah. that you realize their kind of incredible power to go on finding something new to say in the hands of a director and an actor who just noticed something different. And I remember that Papa Esiedu one really clearly because it was set in an um, African country that was in the midst of revolutionary change. And yet the thing about his performance, in, at some levels didn't relate to that, the thing about his performance was that he, he just made you ache for this character. You know, there was this kind of youthful figure destroyed by everything that was going on uh, around him and you knew he was a star you absolutely knew that this this act you were watching was was going to be um somebody you go on watching for the next 30 years and there's a thrill to that and it's then it is thrilling that it gets recognized by the award and one of the the nominees this year I know is Amy Lou Wood and um she was Sonia in in Rickson's 
um, Uncle Vanya, which again was a kind of really strong rethinking of a play. Mm. It had this wonderful idea that, that the whole of the, the forest surrounding the house was actually growing into the living room. So oh, you had amazing. this sense of, of kind of, you know, the climate and what was happening to climate being important. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then again, very detailed performances, very, very fine performances from all the cast. And this young figure, Sonia, much younger than Sonia usually is, um, you just... You just knew she, uh, that this actor who I'd seen on telly, I'd seen her in Sex Education, yeah. um, but she absolutely came on that stage and held her own and illuminated it and found, it is what you're saying, found new ways with the language, a new way into seeing that character. Yeah. And I think, I think going, actually one of the things I like best about going to the theatre is when you see a young actor either making a debut or very, you know, under 30. Yeah. Really making that kind of impact and just kind of knocking your socks off, really. Yeah, no, it's not... I mean, it's glorious. And also, you know, to see young actors opposite older actors just completely inhabiting a space, you know, in equal measure and responding to one another and responding um, in a way that you can only do at that age. You know, there's a wonderful, you know, the, the, what's so great about the canon, the global canon, is that there are parts that you can only play at a certain age. There are parts that are made for 20-year-olds and there are parts that are made for 80-year-olds. And when those two people are together on stage telling a story and taking up that space... There's really nothing better. And that's what's so glorious about it. And and sort of Shakespeare does that, you know, in, in, a, in a really, really perfect way, which is why we return to him. And I can remember that for the first time, you know, I think the first one I ever did was Winter's Tale, but then going to, to Hamlet, um, you know, the, I would never play Ophelia now, of course, because I'm nearly 50, but you just, but, you know, the, you look at that language again and you think, God... You know, there's stuff now that the I you know you say those lines completely different, but it's not written for a middle-aged yeah, woman. It's I written mean, for a girl. I know, but there is that whole sort of you know. I mentioned McKellen. There is this kind of idea of doing it age blind. So he got another go at Hamlet, and yes, that was course, really that was really fascinating. And in fact, he's having a third go at it. He's doing it at um, the Edinburgh Festival in another. Is slightly. he? I didn't and know I, that. I think what's I. I he was terrific as Hamlet. There are issues around him being older. But what is really fascinating is that it's definitely he, he felt he got it wrong first time. So he's gone back and, and he's, yeah, it's, re it's interesting. But I tend to agree with you that um, I think age blindness is really quite hard on a stage and, and kind of, um, yeah, slightly... Oh, it doesn't distort those plays, but it kind of undermines their impact when, because it, it some the that idea of a new generation coming through is is um, really vital. And I think you know one of the things in uh, the pandemic that I wrote about was that you know there was a whole set of actors coming out of drama schools who were really worried about getting that first step yeah. on the classical ladder just getting parts that would allow them to begin to learn their craft and I, I think you know that's what makes the Charleston Awards even more important at this time yeah. and I also was thinking about it because you know Anne-Marie Duff I, I think she's another runner-up I don't think she won it right but she's on the list somewhere yeah and you know I, the first thing I ever saw her 
in that kind of really... I remember on stage with St. Joan where she did oh, yeah. a Marion Elliott's production and, a, and you had a sense of somebody who, who totally belonged in the top echelon of British Is that what British she won Actors. it for? Or? I think she's on the list for that, yes. Yeah, That's my memory. That extraordinary show. Um, and yeah, and you know, just that vividness which she's carried on into everything she's done yeah. but first revealed itself in Shaw. Shaw must be particularly difficult to play, I suspect. I mean, it, uh, we touched on this in the very first episode that there's something about his writing now that people like John Peter adored Shaw. I mean, yeah. the, the previous generation of critics do really love him. I think him. we'll it's, see a lot more of him in the next couple of years, though, because he comes out of copyright, I think, next year. And so there'll be less of a hold, perhaps, over, you know, interpretations and playing around with him. And that will be a really interesting sort of revival, I think, because politically, you know, he's timeless. I mean, the problems that he was writing about haven't, really been solved and so you know we and we're about to enter a really terrifying period of, of poverty in this country and and so socially you know he is still incredibly relevant um and so that will be really really interesting i've only ever done one sure which was you never can tell um which isn't done very often but i've seen lots and read lots and i think that you know, the thing that actors often complain about is those soapbox moments that he doesn't necessarily help the performer uh, in their sort of arc. You have to find a way to to bring his words, you know, into a living, breathing, believable sort of um, body. Uh, his writing is always brilliant, um, but it, but I think that you know there are other direct. Um, other writers, sorry, which I think I've said before, you know, who who do it with more ease. Yeah. But I do think, it, I, I, I think, it, I, you know, he will become more fashionable again. Yeah, it's interesting the range of work that on the shortlist this year for the Charleston, I think there's, there's Paradise, which is sort of Greek, uh, yeah. ad- adapted rather brilliantly by um, Kay Tempest. Um, the Shakespeare, I can't remember what the others were. There's, there's, so... Um, Oh, there's um, Chekhov. Yeah. But um, you don't so much now see sort of um, restoration comedy, for example. I, I wonder if those... Restor- and yet you, you've done a lot of sort of restoration, sort of 17th century work. Yeah. And that, that seems to be the area of the canon that's struggling a bit but you've always liked it really haven't you I do I do like it and I think the the wit I mean well Jack Absolute Flies Again which is on at the National this summer is a a reworking of the uh, Rivals I think by Oliver Chris and Richard Bean and that will be brilliant I'm sure Um, and again it's just an appreciation of the wit and slightly repackaging things so that so that they don't immediately get assumed to be dusty and, you know, not relevant. And I think, the you know, like Wild, like all of these things, they, the wit is timeless and is brilliant. And, and it's just repackaging and shining a different light on it and putting it in a way that a younger audience go, ah, oh, OK. So it's not just you know, an older audience going because it's familiar and they know it and, oh, yes, I saw a brilliant production of that in 18 blah, blah, blah. They actually, the, you know, the... It, it, we 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 do relook at these things for a reason, and I think restoration comedy again, like Shakespeare, is a fantastic 
test of muscles, you know, like farce. It's one of these things that, or even pantomime. You know, I, I remember years ago doing a job with John Nettles and he's passionate, passionate, passionate about pantomime. And, you know, there's a real science science to this comedy and all of that has you know there's an education for a younger generation coming up you know that there's so much cool television and film being made there's you know there's so much new brilliant writing but I do think there is room for all of these things because they 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 talk to each other across the generations and um you know for good reason so when you were doing the recruiting officer for example which yes. is far which I had um, I had um, I don't think I'd ever read it because I, I do remember just thinking oh, you know dusty yeah. volumes and I hadn't ever read it when you rehearsed it was there a conversation about how you kind of made that um, yeah a bit more kind of not just a play about well we did it pretty traditionally I mean we were in the Donmar which I think is, is such a brilliant space um, because it is small and unapologetic and and you know for the most part it's sort of in the round it's not really in the round entirely it's sort of on three sides but but it means that you can get that concentration of um, you know talking directly to an audience and and, you, and it's all very enclosed and and glorious and the whole thing was um who directed it? I can't remember. Uh, Josie Rourke. It was her inaugural production and Lucy Osborne right. designed it. And she put rather beautifully, it was a pretty bare stage and then just had candles at the back, which is sort of fairly lethal, having the wax dripping over. <laughs> I think I fell over a couple of times. But um, <laughs> but, but, I, but it was it was just an incredibly moving piece, ultimately, about uh, government's, um, slightly guilt-tripping or even bribing young men to fight who didn't necessarily have the, the education or the know-how to resist uh, and it, to all intents and purposes going to certain death, you know, which is, is not a new story. And, yeah. and the way that Josie directed it was that there were a lot of laughs and it was beautifully played by Mackenzie Crook and Tobias Menzies and Rachel Sterling and Nick Burns and Gorn Granger. I mean, it was a, just a glorious, glorious cast. But the actual story of the young soldiers and all the, all the young soldiers in the production were musicians as well. So they played all the, I mean, just amazing music throughout the whole piece. But the story itself, which is about young guys just not being not being valued and, yeah. and and dying and disappearing uh with no um with no remorse by the people that sent them to that front line you know, is uh it, still relevant know, it's still relevant yeah. and and so you know yes of course we were all in britches and long coats and all the rest of it and it was all terribly beautiful but it, that story should be told and, yeah. and it was absolutely you know incredibly moving and I mean I th think what I've done the man of mode again which Nick Heitner really really tried to you know sweep into a modern setting but ultimately the story of arranged marriage and you know uh, is again you know has has a place. Do you think there's any resistance among um, younger actors to doing classic plays? I mean so do you think that there's it's changed at all 
going back to the Charleston, one of the qualities of the Charleston is, is it's been particularly supportive and good at spotting yeah. talent among actors of colour and actors from different backgrounds, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And um, who have fitted perfectly and brilliantly into the canon. But when I've, I've been doing um, a bit of teaching and I noticed that some of my younger students are a bit resistant to the idea of and that you know they're training as actors and they they're a bit resistant to the idea of going into you know what they see as plays that are um you know speaking to a different age of a different age not relevant and so on I wonder if you ha- you sense that with with actors that you work with that there's any shift that people do want to do new work and so on I don't know I mean I think it's a very individual thing and I I think it's it's always dependent on what sparked your interest in becoming a performer in the first place was it going to the RSC was it seeing something at the national was it you know doing amateur dramatics you know was it you know watching movies if that if if you you know if it was watching the matrix age whatever and you think i want to be keanu reeves you know then you're not necessarily going to want to jump at the first opportunity to go and do pericles but um you i think that it's it's dependent on theaters and directors and you know and practitioners to create work that speaks to the next generation to say this is still worth having a look at and actually when done well it is as jaw-dropping as it was 50 100 years ago yeah or 300 or 40 yeah yeah. you know we you can write a brilliant new play and do it badly yeah you know and that doesn't necessarily have a ripple effect on the whole of new writing because new writing is seen as new writing and and by virtue of the fact that you know it's happening right now it's cutting edge that doesn't necessarily mean it's you know brilliant it's just happening Um, right now so it's it it depends on how you see the nature of theatrical interpretation and the 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 importance of language there was that brilliant uh, thing years ago that Al Pacino I think was playing Richard III in New York and then he made a documentary about called Looking for Richard and I can't remember the exact details, but one element of it was walking around, you know, interviewing various people about what they felt about Shakespeare and what they, you know, actors who'd done it and what they felt about it. And then eventually, it was one point he was walking along the street and he, there was a guy uh, who looked like he must be homeless um, and he went up to him and said you know do you have an opinion about Shakespeare and um, possibly against expectations which is of course our shortcomings he, he this guy turned round and was I always want to say erudite. It's not erudite. It's erudite. Um, about he was very erudite uh, and <laughs> extraordinary about <laughs> I'm a Wally. Sorry. Yeah, uh, um, the nature of Shakespeare and the, what Shakespeare represented was language in its purest, most articulate form. And that, that is why we must always go back to him because he, he never stops teaching us and that every all the problems with the world today are about breakdown in communication right. and that the people in charge have forgotten how to use language yeah. and that great orators you know, chime through the ages. I mean, I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was basically, it was so extraordinary. It was like, 
He, he is the God yeah, of communication yeah. and we must always return to him. And how lovely it is just to bring things to a quiet conclusion that Ian Gelson, who was, uh, you know, an actor who I think everybody who saw him loved and who, as yeah. you say, died tragically young, is is still part of that, um, of people's kind of collective memory of um blazing talent yeah. and and now goes on to a next generation yeah definitely and just joy joy in his work i think that's a good moment to end on so let's just say it's goodbye from the critic and goodbye from the actress <laughs>